Welcome to the Investment Cuddle, episode 15. Today I'm joined by Philip, Keith and Justin. And on the podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about trading today and investment as well, but a bit around successes and failures and also look at the international perspective on trading because Justin, who's joined us on the podcast, is operating out of Hong Kong. The rest of us are based in the UK. So Justin, um, welcome to the podcast. We're just going to sort of kick off on success and failures. I think you, when you were first starting out, were looking at ticker symbol RBW. Do you want to tell us a little bit of, or give us a bit of background on where you got to with that one? Uh, hello. Uh, thank you, Rush, for having me. Uh, glad to be here. So, yes, the trials and tribulations. This stock, Rainbow Rare Earths Limited, listed on the London Stock Exchange, was my first foray into the stock market into trading or investing. And as you can imagine, you know, as you're dipping your toes into this new world, you know, I I try to do as much homework as I can. I I don't actually remember where I I first read about this or where the first inspiration came from. But it was around early 2018 that I got interested. And I I recall distinctly, I had I had a thesis. So the thesis uh, went as follows. We have the world moving towards, you know, electric vehicles. You know, everything's uh, becoming renewable. We're, we're trying to move away from fossil fuels. And what you need for renewables is that you need batteries. Uh, what you need with batteries is rare earths. And about, you know, 70% of the world's rare earth supply is locked up in China. And then you add to that the geopolitical situation with China. It made complete sense to me that what these uh, manufacturers uh, would be looking for is an alternative source, a non-China source of rare earths, which then brought me to uh, RBW, uh, Rainbow Rare Earths, which is a a rare earths mine based in Burundi. And I I think it sort of claimed that it was like one of the, you know, the the largest source of rare earths outside of China. I don't recall exactly, but that got me very excited. It's like it, it made complete sense to me from a fundamental perspective that, uh, that, that this was a no-brainer. And uh, trust me, I did my homework. You know, I, um, I looked at all the uh, prospecting surveys that they, they produced. I sort of contacted a, a friend who was a geology graduate, showing them, you know, these, these, these excerpts from these reports and saying, well, what do you think? You know, how, how much rare earth do they, do they think they've got this, in, this, in this mine? You know, I, I, I would think the, this sort of investigation went beyond the, oh, well, here's a ticker, you know, is it going up or down? And really did my due diligence. And so the, the, I, I recall distinctly, first, I bought some shares in, in Rainbow Rare Earths. I think it wasn't very much. You know, I think it came to about 2,000, 2000 pounds worth at uh, 18 pounds. And then it went up. It went up. This was, uh, I think, around April 2018. I'm looking at the charts now. And it went up and up and up and up. And it went to 24 pounds. And I thought, mate, this trading malarkey? It's simple. It, it's you know, child's play, you know. I'll, I'll be mm-hmm. rich. I'll be rich this time next year. Lo and behold, what did it do? Well, it started going the other way. And bear in mind, I went in at eighteen, so I'd come down from twenty-four, go past twenty, go past eighteen, and then it got to around fifteen. This is maybe around uh, July, August time. Uh, oh man, maybe it's not so easy. So then I sold it. I sold it at a loss. 
And then I started to think, maybe this fundamental stuff, you know, I maybe have to marry this to something else. And I remember at that point, you know, Keith and I, well, we're all good buddies, but, but Keith and I um, had a couple of uh, weekends where we went down to uh, a place called the Cooper's Arms, having a Sunday roast, and we were debating, you know, for hours about the merits uh, or, or the pitfalls of fundamentals trading versus technicals trading. And start, you know, then you start reading up about technicals trading, and then uh, it's it's more or less like dividing the tea leaves, right? You start looking, drawing lines on the chart. You know, you know, you see what you believe, and you believe what you see, right? You know, oh man, there's a support at around ten pounds. Oh yeah, yeah, that that must be it. You know, if you zoom out, you know, your weekly chart, and your daily chart, and then you start going down to the four hour chart, and and you start making up a narrative that uh, allows you, you know, gives you conviction to either you know buy or sell. So bear in mind, bought it at eighteen, sold it at fifteen, kept it going down, got to around ten pounds. And look, oh, that looks like that looks like a solid floor. You know, it's never been below ten pounds. All right. Well, okay. Well, in we go. You know, you believe you've, you've got your fundamentals. Now you've got your technicals, and you buy back in. And then again, I'm looking at the chart around October time. What happens? It goes down to five pounds. I've sort of lost my shirt. You know, and, you know, the, the, the naivety and 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 the optimism of youth is, is completely evaporated. And so I thought I, I need to get out. And, you know, this you know I need to reevaluate my life's choices. And so I sold it at five pounds. And I thought, okay, well, well, at least Justin, you've done the right thing because it kept them going, it kept them going, and it's at one point it got down to about one pound fifty, uh, and then so you know, languishing, you know, in the in in the one to two pound range, one to three pounds, and then you know, in the last three months, it, it's sort of started pumping again, and you know, just looking at it closing today's what the twenty third, uh, yesterday it closed at thirteen pounds sixty. So so I, I think that was probably a really chastening lesson uh, in sort of the first foray into investments and trading. And hopefully that resonates with me and whoever is listening out there. Thanks for that, Justin. I think that's a real roller coaster, but I guess in some examples, quite typical of people's experience. Uh-huh. And you know, I think one of the companies you just maybe think of at the moment is MP Materials Corp, which covered SPACs on one of the podcasts a, a few episodes ago. And they've, they, they were a SPAC to start with. And you, you're describing a very similar story there. Not that they've dropped an order of magnitude back yet, but you know, there, there's a similar kind of good news story there with rare earths and commodity prices looking like they're on the rise. So, you know, is that a similar story that that ends up, you know, <laughs> costing people a lot of money? I don't know. Have you looked at MP Materials Corp at all? No, you know, after that experience, I, I, I think I'm still recovering from that, you know? Yeah. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. Have you got, on the other side of it, have you got something that you've been trading or investing in that's worked really well for you over a period or a, a short, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, I don't know how much of this is down to luck. I suspect a great dollop of it. But, you know, in recent times, we've done very well with some Taiwanese stocks, mainly those that are listed in New York. There's one in particular called uh, ASE Technologies. They're doing very well at the moment. And and the thesis behind that was, it, especially in the last year, when, when the, the political situation between China and the US was getting a bit more tense and the supply chains in the US were looking to wean themselves off uh, of China, you know, the closest they could get to replicate that was Taiwan. 
So again, starting off with the fundamentals and then uh, attached to that, reading about these companies and understanding their sort of technical technological advantage. And, you know, you see those stocks, you know, they're going up, you know, relative to maybe this time last year or during the big crash around March, April time. These companies have gone up, you know, 4x, 5x. So managed to catch a little bit of that wave. But, you know, really a lot of this is like hearsay, chatting with friends and hearing, oh, look at this ticker. And often, you know, at this stage, relative compared to, you know, the homework that I did on RBW, it really is okay. Give me three letters, any any three letters, uh, and you know, chuck some money on it, and maybe it goes up. So I, I reckon, you know, the successes have come come about with altogether a more cavalier attitude compared to the scrutiny that I that I started off with. And yeah, and I, and I think you know, any successful trade or investment, there's always a slice of luck in there. I think anybody that's saying it's just all purely them is perhaps uh, perhaps <laughs> got a different approach. But but you with with that particular stock, were you watching the US dollar? at that time or were you looking for any other signs that that was a, a good you know in terms of momentum or you know the way it was going to go was there any other signs that you were using to indicate that I think in terms of the, the US dollar now living and you know receiving a salary in Hong Kong dollars it was less of an issue for us obviously uh, having lived and worked for 10 years in, in the UK. I had some savings in, in pounds. So the, the sort of Forex aspect of it was, I was more interested in, in, in the Forex aspect uh, in relation to that part of savings. But in terms of these stocks, you know, not, not really. It, it sort of uh, evened itself out. So it wasn't a concern for me. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. In my mind, I always think about, you know, if the dollar's, the dollar's weakening, the emerging markets, and and I guess where well, you're probably perhaps talking about a tech stock there, but the emerging markets should do better. The emerging markets, are you know a lot a lot of the far east countries are in those funds if you're buying them as, as funds rather than individual stocks like you're talking mm. about so we'll so we'll keep an eye on that because that kind of you know you, you talked earlier on about rbw back in 2018 and i think i remember you know selling pretty much all of our emerging markets holdings at that point having had success there and then they've not done anything until probably the last quarter of last year so you're talking you know let's say two years roughly they have you know they're almost on a cycle you can argue but also it seemed to be timed with the dollar weakening and emerging markets seem to be ticking up. Philip, have you got any um, successes or failures you wanted to share with us? Trials and tribulations, yeah. adventures and misadventures. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, there have been some investments that have gone quite south over the years. There's probably two that are probably the best examples of that case. One was when I probably first started investing at all in an ISA, which was back in 2007, 2008 sort of time. I just started a uh, stocks and shares ISA and I was buying some unit trusts. Um, one of the unit trusts I was buying on a monthly basis was um, JP Morgan East European Russian Fund. It was around the time when the uh, Vladimir Putin got a bit aggressive with certain oil, foreign-owned oil companies and renationalized them, like UCOS and whatever. And let's just say this fund went down and down and down. I think in the end, it got to some like 90% loss of what I'd originally put into it. It wasn't a huge amount of money because I was drip feeding it. It was, at the time, it was, it was, that was a large percentage drop. And it reminded me of situations where things are cheap, but doesn't mean to say they can't get even cheaper. Politics in certainly emerging parts of the world uh, are more important than any fundamental you can think of so that was a baptism of fire right at the beginning yeah i'm just going to say philip that you know justin talked about let's say from his 10 pound trade to a five pound trade you know a 50 percent loss you're talking about a 90 percent loss you know there might be people screaming at the uh, speaker or the, their phone saying you know what, what where were your stop losses what were your what were you doing why weren't you out at, you know i don't know 10 percent down 20 percent down i guess that's the fair question why in those instances were you not running for the hills earlier in my case because i was just 
started investing at all in stocks and shares and not in cash savings. I'd never heard of a stop loss. Didn't know what one was. The other one was it was a unit trust. So therefore, stop losses don't work. They work on stock market listed vehicles such as investment trusts, shares and ETFs only. But I would echo what, what Phil said. You know, I think when you start off, you know, you're blessed with wide eyed optimism and naivety. Who needs a stop loss when it's going up? And then as it starts going south, you know, I, I think the pitfalls of trading psychology really kick in. And, and obviously, that was my first experience of it where you think, oh, well, you know, I've lost so much already. I need to hold on when, when, it, when it goes the other way. And, you know, I think that speaks a lot to portfolio management and discipline about how much of your pot of money, whatever you put aside for investments, you know, how what percentage of that do you go in with? Obviously, in hindsight, if the thing rockets up a Tesla or something, you wish you put your whole whole life savings onto it. But, you know, that that's a gamble and that, that's not trading or investing. So, so I think the discipline aspect of it and the management aspect of it is really important. And obviously, you know, you still learn these lessons every day. I was just going to say, I'd agree with Justin there. At the beginning, I found it really difficult to cut losses. And that particular example I gave you is probably extreme case of not cutting your loss. I'm going to cut my loss so bad because psychologically, you're, you're crystallizing a loss. And psychologically, it's dealing with that that's the biggest challenge. And to be honest, I found the only way I could get through that was by making some small losses and working it through. Yeah, and I don't, I don't disagree. I think the thing that people always seem to, I, and I didn't really get my head around this, is you know, if, if you're down 20%, that particular stock, let's say, has got to return 25% to get you back to break even. And as that loss gets bigger, the percentage gets bigger, doesn't it? I mean, you, you're talking about mm. down to five pounds, Justin. You have a 50% loss and 100% return needs to be made to get back to break even. Those sorts of numbers are kind of scary. Absolutely. I, I think uh, what, what really helped me or has moved me in the right direction was a series of videos that I watched by Mark Douglas called How to Think Like a Professional Trader. Uh, I think it's available just on YouTube if you type in Mark Douglas. I apologize in advance for the, for the crude language, but he sort of describes the retail trader that eats like a bird and shits like an elephant. So what that means, uh, according to him, is that you know when it goes up a little bit, you think, oh, well, you know, let me take profit if it goes up a few percent, whatever. You think, okay, well, let me let me take some profit here because that makes me feel good. Uh, and then, but if it goes the other way, you know, then you're shitting like an elephant, you know, it goes all the way down. You think I'm holding on to this, you know, till grim death. But in reality, what you need to do is the other way around. You know, what you need to do, set your, your stop losses at a manageable level that doesn't increase your blood pressure. And then if it's going up, then well, why are you selling it? You know, just let it run. It's easier said than done, obviously. It makes 100% sense when you're, when you're listening to it now. But when you're in it, you know, you've got money invested. It's a very difficult hurdle to overcome. As I say, that's very interesting, Justin, because that's a very similar advice you got from reading Reminiscence of Stock Operator. Livermore, um, a very famous or possibly infamous trader in the United States about 1910 to 1940. He said that was one of the biggest things he learned was it's knowing to when to hold when it's going up and not selling too early and being brutal about losses. Cut them quickly. Kenny Rogers also spoke about that, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> no one to hold them. No one to hold <laughs> You got to know when to walk away. No when to run. On that bombshell, have you got anything to share with us? <laughs> well, I, I think it's really interesting that you listen to the stories and we're all approaching this game from a very different perspective and we're all trading different products but we're all affected by the same kind of things it's, we're all finding the psychology is such a, a big element so my approach is I, I try to approach systematically but still the psychology as just described you know when something goes against you the real challenge is is the 
psychology, it can cause you to question your methodology. As Phil described, you know, and, and it happened to Justin, you know, you can have a stop in mind. So you might have, you might be trading a product that doesn't allow you to set a stop that would trigger automatically, but you can have a stop in mind executing on that stop when it comes to it. That's the discipline that you need. And if you don't exercise that discipline, well, bad things can happen. <laughs> so one of the pitfalls that I fell down a couple of times actually is when I'm questioning my approach and I take tips from others and entering into positions which you know they sound reasonable but it's not my it's not my working and those trades can become really difficult to manage if you're not disciplined and commodities especially can go against you quite rapidly there's a couple of examples where I've had to take big losses on commodities where I've followed other people's tips that's not to say that I've not had big losses following my own <laughs> methodology but uh, but if you don't have conviction then and, you know, holding on to that trade becomes very difficult or entering into the next one using the same methodology can be difficult. Yeah. And, and I guess it's interesting on a trade perspective. You said a bit about following other people's trades or tips. Was that just a timing issue that left you in a different position to them? Or is it just the fact that actually they lost as well? I think a big part of that for me is that I wouldn't necessarily been inclined to take that tip if I'd have been in a position where I was more confident in my own system. I've probably acted upon the, this information that is coming in all the time, but I'm picking the worst moment to act upon it. It might be a coincidence, but at least, you know, when I look back at those periods, I recognize that perhaps what I should have been doing was either not trading at all, you know, or going back, looking at my methodology, how how successful could I expect it to be? Am, am I within what I would expect that method to return? I'd, uh, I think both you, Gary, and, and Keith have, have touched on a really interesting thing. I'm probably stating the bleeding obvious, but it was a lesson that I had to, is that anything that you're investing in at any point in time can be going up or down. But in fact, it's a three-dimension, right? You know, timing of it, it is probably the most crucial thing. You know, I, I think, you know, they discuss trading or investing, but it, it's also, it, it's just, you know, different points on a spectrum, you know, trading, I think generally people understand it to be a more short-term thing, investing people understand it to be a more long-term thing, but what you need to do is is set your time horizon. Are you looking a return within a month or are you looking at a return within a year or is this a long-term thing? Maybe you'll pass down to your kids, you know, it's a 10-year investment, but having a set time frame in your head, I think really sets out your parameters and calms the nerve because... You sort of think, well, you know, if, if you're looking, say, return in the next year, then short-term fluctuations, you know, the day-to-day -day might become less important. But if you're looking at a day trade, you know, then obviously your time horizon is much shorter than you're hoping for it to shoot up or down, as, as the case may be, within that time period. I think, I think that element of time is really important, Justin, because I was just going to go on to say about the, the amount that you win and lose. When you trade, you're not going to win 100% of the time. You're not going to make gains 100% of the time. And, you know, if you look at the health warning on any of the platforms that provide the service say you know i don't know what it is somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of people lose money so you've got to be making sure this comes back to what we were saying earlier on about cutting your losses you've got to keep your losses small and let your winners run essentially and that is as we've said earlier on totally psychological because as you said justin you want to take a profit off the table because it's a profit you can see it there it might be a small one but you take it but when it goes the other way on you you get rid of the lot and therefore you're you're doing the opposite to what we just said you should be doing you're taking a 
small gain and a big loss. So it is psychological. And I think I think from what we've been saying about the, the winners and the, and the losers, it's about process, as Keith said. But I think it's all also about experience, getting yourself in a position where you know what you're prepared to do to follow that process. And I found that really difficult. I mean, last year I was tr- trading treasuries, so long-term treasuries. And I did almost the bird example that you were talking about, where I was taking little profits here and there. And actually, as treasuries turned at the end of 2020, I took a, a, a reasonable sized loss to get out. But actually, on the year, I was still positive on that trade. But I could have been a lot better off if I got my timing right. So I think, as we say, timing's everything, really. I know there's lots of other factors. But for me, trend following, call it what you want, is so fundamental to following things in a relatively short time frame. And I'm talking, you know, up to, say, three months or something like that. One of the trades that I would consider one of my most successful, what I what I assumed was the general direction of the market was turn out to not be the case. So my direction was wrong, but actually in the way that I sized and managed the trade, I was able to hold a position over a period of time, be wrong and not lose money. And that's Can all you expand about, on that? Well, I mean, the, the easiest way to say it is nothing goes, nothing goes in a straight line. So... Uh, Apart from Bitcoin, am I right? Is up. <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah, well, uh, Bitcoin can have a you know twenty percent down in a week, but it'll have just lost the last week and a half's gains. So yeah, you can have a, uh, a general direction. And in, in this case, what I had done was I picked the bottom of the oil market, but I was what, when it was negative. Uh, but I was short <laughs> just just after that after the contract roll, and but basically the prices were positive, but the market had bottomed. I held a short view over a period of a couple of weeks and it, it was ripping higher. But what I was catching was the downward movements in that uptrend and catching enough of it and getting out so that I held a short view over a period of time, but I didn't lose any money whilst it was going up. That's great, Keith. I, you, the way you were able to execute that trade, is that purely down to experience in terms of you understanding your process better now than you did maybe when you were talking about your other experiences? Well, uh, I think why it stands out in my mind is because that was me being disciplined. And in part, there's an element of luck there in the timing because you know, uh, none of us are in the position where we would be on the screen as a professional trader would be. So there is an element of, uh, well, there's an element of looking at trade but uh, the discipline to follow that process and for it to protect you when things are going against you was really satisfying I wish that I could have the same success in any trade that I do in terms of executing exactly the plan yeah I think don't we all (laughs) I think that would be great but I think as you say every trade is different unfortunately and therefore you draw on your experience perhaps to enact whatever you're doing on that particular day the sort of three or four things that really jumped out at me about the trading discussion was the fact that disciplines come up I think all of you have, have used the word discipline once or twice conviction in what you're doing which kind of then led me to thinking well really this is about perseverance and being able to persevere with this is about sizing your trades appropriately so you don't blow up too early because we've all said where we started from which you know we've and we've learned a lot we've got our fingers burnt so the sizing of those trades is really important as a percentage of whatever you are trading as a trading pot let's say or an investment pot so Philip do you want to share your experience on sizing of trade? Yes, I can give an example of one where in hindsight I got it very wrong the size of my trade. So uh, there are some times when I've been buying in and around dividend day. And this one concerns uh, Marston's PLC which is a brewer in the UK. It was coming up to its dividend date and it looked quite promising so I bought some shares into it. Uh, 
what was the, for relative against my portfolio was a quite a small sizing. But the mistake I made was I then went and copied that same trade, my trading account, my SIP, so my uh, privately run pension fund, and my ISA. And I mentally had forgotten that they should sum together. Each one individually was quite small because I was duplicating across the same share <laughs> over a very, very short space of time. When you stand back, I had an oversized position completely for Masters. Now, I was very, very lucky the fact that I got the dividend and I got certain capital increase a couple of days after the dividend. Um, but it could have very easily have gone against because it was so large. It could have been quite painful. So it's also one there going to, again, mentally, I just forgot today I should add these up. Very simple, but it's, uh, yeah, if it gets it too big, can, particularly if it looks too enticing, can get overconfident. I think that's fair, Philip. The discipline side of it is you were disciplined on the size of the trade. You just put it across too many platforms, let's say. Oh, yeah. Doubling up can be a problem because you, particularly when things are going well, yes, you maybe want to double up. You need to, I didn't just double up, trebled up, drupled up, say, very, very quickly. Yeah. And I, and I think it's probably worth just saying that from my perspective, I always try and take principle within the process that, you know, three to 5% of any individual stock is a limit. 15% of any sector is a limit. And so I guess from Justin and Keith's perspective on a trading side, when you whether it's day trading or, or slightly broader than that, is there any rules that you guys follow in terms of a percentage of portfolio or size of trade that you follow? For me, it's just finding a lot size, whatever feels comfortable. Because I think everyone's Philip's story resonates with everybody that everyone's got a story where they've gone in too big. And obviously, I've suffered my fair share of that as well. But it's just going in with a lot size that you're comfortable with that, you know, if this stock or whatever instrument halves, you're not going to lose sleep over it or lose too much sleep. And it's just finding that balance, you know, a rough rule of thumb for me is, as you said, Gary, about three to five percent to me feels comfortable. But it's just finding that that balance. What about you, Keith? Is, is there a sizing or a lot sizing, as Justin said, that you look at or restrict yourself to? Oh, in terms of trade sizing, I probably go too big on about 95% of my trades until it goes against me. <laughs> I'm delighted with the trade sizing <laughs> until it goes against me. Right. As I just say, that's quite bold. But I guess, you know, because if you're in an account where you can get leverage, that's from a trading perspective, I guess it's a good way to lose money. Blow up. But if the trade goes the right way, it's a good way to make money, right? Yeah, it's a good way to blow up. So, yeah, so I think we've chatted about sizing. We just wanted to kind of focus in on what Justin's doing in Hong Kong. So, Justin, I was interested to understand, you know, you spent a long time in the UK. You were, I think it's fair to say, actively trading in the UK or at least had an eye on finance and investing while you were here. Being in Hong Kong, how has your experience changed? You know, good and bad, I guess. You could always try and find some positives from your time in the UK, maybe. What's been the rhythm of of activity or access to markets have you got a perspective for us on how that's changed from when you were trading in the uk i think first of all moving back to hong kong three years ago coincided with my sort of first foray initial forays into trading and investing i must say when i first started off my my focus was very much on uk based stocks and shares and moving back to hong kong somehow being slightly further away maybe not keeping up with the news as much then you start looking at uh, other markets as well primarily the US, a little bit of the Asian markets, primarily in Hong Kong. My typical day, uh, bear in mind, Hong Kong is uh, GMT plus eight. Waking up in the morning would be checking how the US stocks had fared overnight. And then just really going about my day, you know, being in Asia, it is pretty good because it gives you the whole day to maybe do some research, do some planning. And then, you know, London opens at four o'clock 
in the afternoon, my time really gives you the whole evening to be watching the stock market, which may or may not be detrimental to your social life. And then the US market opens at 10.30. So so then you've got a couple hours in the evening to be watching that. There have been a couple of times where you know you wake up in the middle of the night because you, you've got a trade on in the US and it might may or may not contribute to, to your quality of sleep. But that's what a typical day looks like for me. I think it's interesting from my perspective because I, I guess for us, we get a bit of access to the US market once the UK and European markets have closed at sort of 4.30 UK time. That's quite good. The US market finishes usually about sort of nine o'clock in the evening UK time. So we've got that evening bit. And again, it, as you said, it's not necessarily very conducive to a social life, but you've got the UK market opening first thing in the morning and the European markets and then got through to kind of nine o'clock in the evening. I think from, from a perspective where you've got time to do your research during the day and and then coming to it in the evening, I think is that strikes me as a good balance. I think, as you said, the US timing for you guys probably is not optimal for your sleeping patterns if, you, if you're looking at that as well. But yeah, it's an interesting perspective. And that's why I wanted to sort of talk through it because from my point of view, it's the whole thing of, you know, the markets hardly ever sleep and it's which bits can you really get access to and, and take advantage of? Because as we've said earlier on, if timing is so important, you know, there's the old adage of, you know, it's not timing the market, it's time in the market. Well, that's fine if you're a long-term investor. If you're that's worse advice I think you could probably take. Yeah, I think it sort of ties back up neatly with the conversation in, in which we started. One of the lessons learned is that the markets are always open. It's like a casino in, in that respect. You know, they never the door never shuts. You know, especially if you're playing in commodities, the markets only shut on Sundays. If you're investing in crypto, the markets are open twenty four seven. So it's, it's about again discipline for me. You know, focusing on a, on a few things at a time because you can't look at everything and, and really having discipline not only in proportion your time. It's about discipline, not in the sizing that we talked about earlier, but also rationing your time because you can't be on 24-7. I think that's a big lesson that I've learned. Yeah, absolutely. I'd echo that. So I just want to say thank you to Philip, Keith, and of course, Justin for joining us today. And we'll see you next time. This program has been presented for information and educational purposes only. None of the information or content of the programme is to be taken as an offer, opinion or recommendation by the programme's hosts or guests to buy or sell securities. Nor is it intended to provide legal, tax, accounting, commercial or financial advice. Opinions and comments are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investing involves risk as prices go up or down based on a number of factors. Always consider consulting a financial professional before investing.